Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. And this week, we're starting the show a little different. We're taking a stroll through one of America's wealthiest neighborhoods, Manhattan's Upper East Side. In this part of the city, you'll find museums like the Guggenheim and the Met. And if you make your way up Park Avenue, two blocks over from Central Park, what you'll really notice along this tree-lined boulevard are these imposing residential buildings full of apartments bigger than most people's houses. Reveal's Aaron Glantz is in front of one of them right now. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Al. Uh, Yeah, I'm in front of 740 Park Avenue. It's known as the world's richest apartment building. It's a gorgeous Art Deco building built back in the 1920s. Once it was home to John D. Rockefeller Jr., and now it's home to a lot of Donald Trump's closest friends and advisors. In fact, I'm looking down the street right now, and I can see the gold of Trump Tower. Okay, so who exactly lives at 740 Park Avenue? Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, for one. So does Steve Schwartzman, founder of Blackstone, the giant private equity firm. Mogul Tom Barrick, uh, one of Donald Trump's closest friends, he has an apartment in the neighborhood, too. Aaron, I know you've been investigating these guys for years. They don't just have Trump and a fancy address in common, though. So what's the real story here? I'm here because the people who live in this building, they're the people who hoovered up the wealth of hundreds of thousands of people. When millions of Americans lost their wealth, who got it? These people. I call them the homewreckers. Homewreckers, that's the title of your new book, and you've been looking into how they manipulated our economy. Right. When 8 million Americans lost their homes during the Great Recession, these men stepped in and made a killing. Most of the time, these homewreckers didn't have to break the rules. They took advantage of a rigged system and even got the government's help. And now, with Trump in office, some of them are making the rules. Now, to understand how they pulled this off, you have to understand how people who live in that building on Park Avenue are connected to a house nearly 3,000 miles away. It's in a suburb just north of Los Angeles. Aaron went there over the summer. 681 Benson Way is the sort of home that you'll find all over America. It's 1,500 square feet. Built in 1965, it has a two-car garage, decorative wooden shutters, and a small patch of lawn with a lemon tree out front. I've come here because all those homewreckers made money off this simple suburban home. And it all started with an ad. Hi, this is James Garner for Financial Freedom. It was 2005, and Richard Hickerson was sitting in the living room of this house. 
in his overstuffed brown easy chair, his golden retriever at his side. His wife Patricia was a few feet away sitting on the sofa. They had lived here for decades. Now in their late 70s, they were spending a lot of time just like this, watching TV. If you're 62 or older and own your own home, I'd like to talk to you about something you should know. The Pitchman was one of Dick's favorite actors from the 70s. It's called a reverse mortgage, and it's a safe, easy way to quickly turn your home equity into tax-free money. If you're a homeowner 62 or older, why not give financial freedom a call? Who knows? It might just change your life, too. Dick and Patricia had worked and saved their whole lives. They had $300,000 in the bank, plus hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity in the house on Benson Way. But Dick was worried about the future. So when he saw the ad, Dick dialed the number on his screen. And soon a salesman arrived at their door with a red, white, and blue PowerPoint presentation. The last slide read, So you ask, what's the catch? None! Dick and Patricia signed on the dotted line. Now Dick and Patricia weren't living alone. Their oldest daughter, Sandy Jolly, had moved home to live with her parents. They asked me if I would come home. My dad was suffering from terminal cancer. He was on narcotic pain medication, and he was drinking heavily for the pain. And my mom had Alzheimer's. She couldn't do numbers or anything. Moving home was a big change for Sandy. She was a fiercely independent woman. When she was 19, she ran off with an airline pilot and became a flight attendant, back when they used to call them stewardesses. She and the pilot had a child together, then divorced. Sandy raised her daughter as a single mother. She was working in India managing a nonprofit when her parents got sick and she came home. Sandy had moved home to protect her parents, but they'd signed the reverse mortgage without even telling her. And then, three weeks later, something horrible happened. Dick went into the hospital for yet another surgery. He never came out of intensive care. Dick ended up dying in the hospital. That just weighed on my heart. It was so traumatic, I can't even tell you. Sandy was grieving, but she still had to care for her mother. And she had to sort out the family finances. So Sandy and her sister went upstairs to her parents' home office and opened the drawers. And so we started going through all the files, the file cabinet. What she found in that file cabinet, it would spark a 10-year battle between Sandy and the home wreckers. I found 14 pages of a reverse mortgage contract. My sister and I decided we were going to find out what the heck is this. Her father had just died. Dialing this mortgage company was the last thing Sandy wanted to do. But she found herself on the phone day after day. I started calling the reverse mortgage company and said, this money is sitting in the bank. We have no use for it. We need our property to care for my mom, and I want to give it back. And they refused. And they refused two more times after that. A reverse mortgage allows seniors to take money out of their homes. And in exchange, when they die, the bank can take the house. At the time, the house on Benson Way was worth about half a million dollars. 
Financial Freedom paid what was left on Dick and Patricia's mortgage, about $120,000, and put $80,000 in their savings account, money they'd never need to pay back. But the company also charged them $20,000 in fees. Every month thereafter, there'd be more fees, and the interest would compound. And after they both died, Financial Freedom would be able to take the house. This was during the housing bubble. Home prices were skyrocketing, and banks were hell-bent on making as many loans as possible, no matter how improbable. That is, until the party ended. Fear, anger, and high anxiety were the prevailing emotions outside branches of the failed IndyMac Bank out in California. Bill Whitaker, That reverse mortgage company, Financial Freedom, it was part of a huge bank called IndyMac, which you might remember from its infamous downfall during the financial crisis. Really? Let's not fight. The federal government, in the form of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, stepped in to take it over. Now the government was in the unpleasant position of owning this disaster of a bank. And while customers jostled on the streets of Pasadena, bank regulators in Washington were scrambling too. At the center of the crisis was Sheila Baer, chair of the FDIC. A Republican from Kansas, she'd been appointed by George W. Bush. Now, Bear's often portrayed as a hero, one of the few federal officials who stuck up for consumers during the financial crisis. People like Warren Buffett sang her praises. You got a wonderful person with Sheila Bear. Most, right. most of the viewers have never heard of Sheila Bear. It's been a magnificent job. Nobody's ever heard of her. She'll never get a golden parachute or any severance pay or anything. She's done a great job. Sheila Bear's job was to safeguard consumer deposits, which meant stabilizing the banks. The last thing she wanted was to keep IndyMac on the government's books. It was one of the worst of the worst. I mean, and, and that says a lot because there was a lot, of bad, <laughs> a lot of bad mortgage lending going around. It was the summer of 2008. The economy was teetering, and Sheila Bear was stuck with IndyMac. She put it up for auction and waited for bidders. But the entire banking industry was collapsing. And she couldn't find one that wanted to buy it. I will confidently say of the options we had, we picked the best ones we could. <laughs> there weren't always good options. Well, you had one bidder, so yeah. you picked the best option you had. <laughs> That's right. Yes, we did. <laughs> the only bidder was an investment group headed by Steve Mnuchin. Years before he became President Trump's Treasury Secretary, Mnuchin was just a hedge fund guy who'd once worked for Goldman Sachs. He lived in that opulent apartment building on Park Avenue that we told you about earlier. He was mostly known as the son of Robert Mnuchin, a top executive at Goldman. This was Steve's big chance to do a deal on his own. Here's how he described it years later on CNBC. One of the most proud aspects of my career was buying IndyMac during the financial crisis. We bought it from the government in a highly competitive six-month auction. And we saved a lot of jobs. This was a great deal for Mnuchin. His group paid the government nothing. In exchange, they got the bank headquarters in Pasadena, 33 bank branches across Southern California, and $6 billion worth of deposits. And they got all of IndyMac's loans, including billions of dollars worth of reverse mortgages, among them the one Sandy's parents took out. Even all these years later, Sheila Bear tells me that was the best deal the government could get. But you basically sold it for zero dollars, right? People like to, it's, you know, oh, well, you sold it for nothing. 
we sold it in return for it wasn't a monetary, it wasn't a check they wrote us, but they were they were standing behind, they were assuming all of those liabilities that otherwise we were going to have to guarantee ourselves. She says IndyMax loans were so bad that the government would have lost a fortune if it had to pay off all that bad debt itself. So even for zero dollars, she says, Steve Mnuchin was doing us all a big favor. And she notes that while Mnuchin and his group didn't pay the government anything, they did agree to invest more than a billion dollars in the bank. But here's the thing. When Steve Mnuchin foreclosed on a family like Sandy's and lost money, the government promised to pay almost all the difference. But actually what their agreement says is that if they lose money, then you'll subsidize that too. Right. When our losses would have been even higher if we had not offered the loss share, because they, they probably wouldn't even have taken them. I showed her a copy of the deal. It's 38 pages long. But in this case, the government is going to pick up the loss, and not only the loss of the loan, but also, you know, it says here the accrued interest, attorney's fees, foreclosure costs, property protection, tax and insurance, appraisal costs, inspection costs. We're subsidizing all of this. So (laughs) I think it's easy 10 years after to say, oh, well, you could have done this and this and this differently. She says the government had been handling bank takeovers this way as far back as the 1980s. And Sheila Bear notes she did get Steve Mnuchin to agree to one thing, to help the people on the other end of all those bad loans. She paints this as a major victory for homeowners. The deal basically invented mortgage modification programs, which were supposed to help regular people like Sandy Jolly, who were caught in the middle of a national economic catastrophe. By this point, it had been nearly four years since Sandy's father died, and she'd taken the bank to court. But now she hoped that with new ownership and a mortgage modification deal in place, the bank might work with her. I stood outside the courthouse as she described the case. All those years, I kept holding out the hope that justice could be served. Sandy didn't get a mortgage modification. Instead, she got a years-long court battle. Under Mnuchin's leadership, the bank fought back hard. The central issue? Whether Sandy's parents had the mental capacity to sign the loan. The bank hired an expert witness who examined Sandy's mother. When he interviewed her, Patricia couldn't remember what day of the week it was, the name of her dog, or even how many legs a cow has. The way I saw this case, maybe in my naive way, was that it was a slam dunk. But on the stand, the bank's medical expert testified that Sandy's mother did have the mental capacity to sign a reverse mortgage. The case didn't go to trial until 2011. By that point, Sandy's mother had died. And the bank's attorneys, they painted a sinister picture of Sandy's relationship with her parents. They called me uh, a freeloader living off my parents, that I moved in with my parents because I lost my job and that I was a greedy, evil child who wanted the property, and I didn't care one whit about my parents, that I didn't love them at all. The jury sided with the bank. After the trial, the foreman signed a sworn affidavit, saying that although a majority of the jury members thought the bank committed fraud, it didn't matter, because Sandy's father wanted the reverse mortgage. According to the bank's lawyer, her dad even hugged the salesman. The bank's attorneys had done a good job. 
The foreman said that by the end of the trial, most of the jury didn't like Sandy Jolly. Several said they just didn't want her to get her parents' house. The bank had successfully put Sandy on trial. She lost in court, but her fight was just beginning. He who can sustain the most pain wins. This is my investment philosophy. When we come back, we meet another homewrecker who also found a way to profit off the house on Benson Way. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Today, we're talking about a handful of people who made a ton of money by destroying the American dream. We're calling them homewreckers. They're close to President Trump and live close to Trump Tower. A bunch of them even live in the same building, 740 Park Avenue. Reporter Aaron Glantz is at that building. And Aaron, earlier we mentioned that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin lives there. I should say, at least when he's not at his other homes in Scotland, Bel Air, Washington, D.C. Yeah, uh, Steve Mnuchin lives on the 8th and 9th floor. He has a view of Central Park. I can look up at his apartment from where I'm standing. I mean, obviously, I'm not inside there now, but I can tell you that his apartment is 6,000 square feet. Five bedrooms, six and a half bathrooms, 11-foot ceilings, marble floors, a sweeping staircase, a wood-paneled library. That sounds pretty impressive, and as I understand it, it's on the market. Yeah, Uh, He's trying to sell it for $27 million. Uh, You know, Mnuchin used to party here with George Clooney. uh, But now that he's in Washington, he has another mansion in Rock Creek Park. So he doesn't need this anymore. Maybe you should buy it. (laughs) Yeah, no. I I work at public radio, man. There is no way I can afford an $18,000 a month maintenance fee. Well, maybe you need a new line of work, Al, because that hasn't been a problem for Mnuchin. Remember, he's known as the foreclosure king. The federal government paid his group more than a billion dollars when his bank foreclosed on tons of homes. Yeah, and one of them is the family home of the woman we've been following, Sandy Jolly. Before the break, we heard how she lost her court battle with Steve Mnuchin's bank. But she refused to give up. Aaron picks up the story from there. Sandy was one of more than 100,000 families, 
including 23,000 who had reverse mortgages, that Mnuchin's bank foreclosed on. I really wanted to talk to him about this. I made a bunch of inquiries and even sent certified letters to four of his houses. He didn't respond. After her court battle, Sandy kept living in the house on Benson Way. And on April 2nd, 2013, when the house went on the auction block, she showed up. The auction was outside the same courthouse where she'd lost a trial. This spring, we went there together. Sandy told me how she'd arrived an hour early, clutching a large packet of paperwork. A crowd of potential buyers with clipboards gathered on the patio outside the building. They were waiting for the bidding to open on her home and at least a dozen others. And it was mostly men. I started talking to them and I handed them my flyer that said all the reasons why they should not purchase this house. Sandy's flyer was titled Unlawful, Unfair, and Fraudulent Business Practices. It listed nearly 50 reasons not to buy the house. For the most part, it worked. People bid on other homes. But then a woman came walking up. She was short. I don't know, five feet, maybe less. She had a suitcase with her, and she set up her little table. I've never seen one like this. It had a bench, and it had a desk. She plugged in everything, plugged in her Bluetooth, had her cell phone, and started making calls and and setting up her computer. And um, I was intimidated by her, but but I wasn't going to be put off. I came over to her, and I wanted to hand her one of my papers, and she wouldn't take it. Sandy kept pushing, pointing out all the irregularities she said existed in the mortgage and in the foreclosure. I'm asking you not to purchase it. And she said, well, that has nothing to do with me. That's between you and the lender. And I said, well, these things can cloud the title and make it difficult for you. And she said, it won't make it difficult for us. We're paying cash for the property. The bidding started at $315,000. She opened the bid. And then one other person bid something. And then she bid $10,000 over it. And that was that. She bought the house for $330,000. Right. I kept asking her, you know, what's going to happen? Who, you know, who are you? Do you have a card? And she said, don't worry, you'll be contacted. I stayed here while she packed it all up. Her chair, her computer, her Bluetooth, all of it. Sandy walked back to her car and sat there for about an hour. She was too upset to drive. There was nowhere else to go but the house she no longer owned. So when she composed herself, she drove back to Benson Way. Her daughter was waiting for her there. Her sister came over, too. We just walked around the house, you know, remembering how long my parents had been there, how much they loved that house, how proud they were of that house. I was thinking of all the memories. Her reminiscing didn't last long. The next morning, she heard a sound at the door. Came downstairs, and there was this guy there, this young guy, and he said, we're the new owner, and we have the right to evict you. He was sticking a notice to the door with blue masking tape. 
Sandy saved the notice and gave it to me to read. My priority is to keep you in the home as our tenant. The new owner did not purchase this home for resale purposes. Therefore, we are not asking you to move. Should you receive flyers and letters that say we are trying to forcibly evict you, please know that this is absolutely not true. But at the same time, he also delivered a three-day eviction notice. Those letters said to me, they're going to put a tenant in here, and it's either going to be you and you're going to agree to their terms, or it's going to be somebody else and we don't really care. The name on the eviction notice was a mouthful. Colfin AI5 California LLC. That's who owned the house now. <sighs> I'm Obviously, I'd never heard of these people um, and had no idea who they were. But as soon as the guy left, I got on my computer. Her Googling took Sandy to Colony Capital, a company founded by another homewrecker, billionaire Tom Barrick. For decades, Barrick has been a close friend of Donald Trump. He chaired the president's inaugural committee and raised more than $100 million for it. That put him under scrutiny in Robert Mueller's investigation. Among Barrick's many homes is an apartment in one of Donald Trump's buildings on Central Park South. It's on the same floor as Trump's son Eric, and it's less than a mile from Steve Mnuchin's home on Park Avenue. And that company that bought Sandy's home, Colfin AI5 California LLC, we found it was one of more than 300 shell companies incorporated in Delaware that were all part of Barrick's empire. See, for decades, Barrick has been known as a contrarian investor, buying when everyone else is trying to sell. This is my investment philosophy. We wanted to talk to Barrick, but he didn't want to talk to us. But here he is giving a keynote at a University of Chicago real estate conference. In the middle of the housing bust, he told the crowd, he was placing a big bet by snatching up thousands of foreclosed homes. It's been the greatest thing I've ever done in my professional life, honestly. What he described is exactly what happened to Sandy Jolly. So you send out teams with Bluetooth analyzing what's going on in these houses. And that afternoon, they announce a place at which they will hold this auction. All cash, $100 increments. He sounds almost gleeful talking about it. All cash means you have guys walking in, <coughs> honestly, with bags of cashier's checks. Because you have no idea what you're going to have to bid. So we have these little 21-year-old kids that are walking in with, with bags, with Bluetooths on, with cashier's checks in these denominations. All those teams armed with Bluetooths help Barrick's companies amass more than 30,000 homes, including the one that had belonged to Sandy Jolly's family. But that wasn't the only way Barrick got houses. The government also helped. Anytime the government is intervening in our business, if you buy, you will be successful. Remember, the country was in a recession, and by 2011, the government owned more than 200,000 homes that it didn't want. These were homes that had government-backed mortgages. When those mortgages went bad and the homes went into foreclosure, guess who ended up with them? We did. All that real estate swamped the newly formed Federal Housing Finance Agency. With foreclosure files literally piling up in rooms, rooms just full of files that someone was supposed to do something with and they didn't know what that thing was. Enter Julia Gordon, a high-level bureaucrat with a law degree from Harvard. 
she saw this economic crisis as an opportunity for reform. When she arrived, the agency was in disarray. You had a small band of a few hundred civil servants. We're talking accountants, bank examiners, who suddenly had to run multi-trillion dollar businesses, essentially. They were not trained for that. And so the reaction was, how can we make things go away and get back to normal as quickly as possible? The agency did ask the public what to do with all these foreclosed homes. Thousands of people weighed in. Some said they'd use the properties to prevent blight or promote home ownership. Was there any discussion like, okay, what if we bundle these in like bundles of 25 or 50, where like a, you know, a nonprofit organization or a city or somebody who wasn't a giant private equity firm could conceivably bid? Did they talk about that? Zero discussion of it. Of course it was proposed, but it was considered a non-starter due to complexity. Here's what the government did instead. So we held a big fire sale and we sold mortgages at pennies on the dollar to the private equity infrastructure of the country. The first deal was with Tom Barrick's company, Colony Capital. It paid $34 million to buy a controlling interest in 1,000 homes across Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. The deal was a steal. An independent appraiser valued those homes at more than $150 million dollars. But Julia Gordon's bosses said it was the best deal they could get. Now, there were a lot of people, including Julia Gordon, who argued that if these homes were going to be sold in bulk, the deal should come with conditions. Say, giving former homeowners like Sandy Jolly the opportunity to buy them back. The concern was the more conditions that you put on these sales the lower the price would be for people who wanted to buy them. But I don't understand because you told me that there was this incredible pressure to maximize the return to the government, and now you're telling me that you went on a fire sale and you sold these things for pennies on the dollar. The prevailing view inside the building was that if you had put conditions on what you could do or had to do with these properties, that that number would have been even smaller. Think about the supply and demand curve. At this point, there's a big supply and a desperate seller. That's an awesome time to be a buyer. But the auction was only for people who wanted to bid on 1,000 homes spread across (laughs) three states. True that. Um, The way all of these auctions have been set up is that they are set up so only very wealthy, moneyed interest can participate. The government had other options. And there must be an end to a conduct in banking and in business, which too often has given to a sacred trust the likeness of callous and selfish wrongdoing. Back in the 1930s, when America faced an even greater depression, President Franklin Roosevelt formed a government-run mortgage company. Under Roosevelt, the government issued more than a million loans that helped keep people out of foreclosure. And in the rare cases when foreclosures did happen, the government held on to the houses, rented them out, and then sold them to families one at a time after the Depression ended. As a result, the nation's home ownership rate rose for decades, helping to create the modern middle class. Roosevelt's government bank even made money for the taxpayers, unlike the recent deals that handed billions to the homewreckers while President Obama was in office. 
Julia Gordon says officials knew about this history and discussed it after the 2008 housing bust. She says she fought for these ideas, but her bosses weren't persuaded. They missed a huge opportunity there. They could have rented these out to the folks who needed to rent at the time because of a foreclosure. They weren't able to buy a home again. And as time passed by and as folks became eligible for a mortgage or, you know, re-employed and back in a financial position to get a mortgage, they could have sold those homes back to folks. They could have kept the original owners in there or not. And who was on the losing end of those policy debates in Washington? People like Sandy Jolly. Millions of homes were changing hands, from individual families like Sandy's to corporate out-of-town landlords like the Homewreckers. After the foreclosure, Sandy rented the house on Benson Way from Tom Barrick's company. The rent started at $1,900. Three months later, it went up to $2,400. A year after that, the company raised it again. Barrick argued that his firm did people like Sandy a favor by not forcing them to move right away. But that's not how Sandy sees it. They stole that money from me. That's how I feel. Imagine your family owned their home for more than 30 years. And now you're paying rent to live in that same house. Now you have no equity, no wealth, and your rent keeps going up. You know, there were some months where friends and family helped me to pay that. Because I was still recovering from the end of life of my mom and paying those expenses and trying to keep our house. And the lease Sandy signed with Barrick's company? It was unusual. It made her responsible for almost all the maintenance. If she needed an exterminator, Sandy would have to pay for it. The plumbing burst? Sandy would be on the hook. Replace a broken window? She'd also eat that cost. After renting her parents' home for a year and a half, she'd paid more than $42,000 in rent. This was a house that her parents had bought for less than $90,000 back in 1980. Sandy was exhausted. Anybody who hears this will understand. The stress that you're under is so debilitating. The helplessness that you feel in these situations is so debilitating. You want to give up, and it's not in my nature to give up. But, but I can see there were times in my life where I felt like, not that I wanted to harm myself, but that I didn't want to keep living. Sandy knew she needed to get out. By now, her parents' belongings were packed up. So she and her daughter made the half-hour drive up the coast to Oxnard, California. As they turned around the winding roads of subdivisions that bumped up against the Pacific Ocean, Sandy saw a little for rent sign on a brown tract home. She pulled out her cell phone and dialed the number. The rent was cheaper than her parents' home. The landlord was a person, not a company like Colony. She'd found a new place to live. Sandy had moved out, but she kept fighting. I think Sandy was a consummate whistleblower. And we find out that she's not the only one who feels that the government helped banks at the expense of homeowners. This is a disaster. So, U.S. home ownership, 
It's down more. I think they said like 51 years is the lowest, right? 51 years. That's what Donald Trump said on the campaign trail, but he surrounds himself with home wreckers. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we've been talking about a small group of businessmen who cleaned up after the housing bus at the expense of everyday Americans. Reveal reporter Aaron Glantz has written about these guys in his new book called Home Records. Aaron's back in front of 740 Park Avenue, the world's richest apartment building. And Aaron, where does the story go from here? Not very far. Uh, This is the story of two neighbors. Uh, First, there's Sandy Jolly's adversary, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Uh, Remember, back in 2009, he paid the government nothing to buy IndyMac. Then the government paid him when his bank foreclosed on people. But Steve Mnuchin never intended to own that bank forever. He wanted to flip it and make a ton of money. So he started to look around for a buyer, and the buyer that he found was right here in this building. 740 Park Avenue. And who's that? His name is John Thane. He had the penthouse, which had a private elevator. It's just a really amazing apartment. Okay, so I I remember John Thane. He's the guy who took a ton of federal bailout money, which he turned into bonuses for himself and other executives at Merrill Lynch, even as the company was failing. He spent some of that bailout money remodeling his office, the famous $35,000 toilet. Yeah, that's John Thane, he of the $35,000 toilet. Uh, That kind of behavior got Thane fired, uh, but pretty quickly he found himself running another bank called CIT, and that's where Thane was when his neighbor came calling. So that bank that Steve Mnuchin's group bought off the government for zero dollars, five years later he approached John Thane, his upstairs neighbor, and they agreed on a price, $3.4 billion. But people must have been outraged by this. I mean, didn't we just go through this whole crisis where banks were considered too big to fail, and now we're going to create another mega bank run by this guy? Yeah, and it would have been the first new mega bank since the bust. Okay, so what happened when the news of the deal between Mnuchin and John Thane got out? And how was Sandy Jolly involved? Well, the news set off a ton of protest. Across the country, homeowners and consumer advocates mobilized to try to stop the sale. That brings us back to Sandy Jolly. She was one of the activists who forced the Federal Reserve to hold a special hearing. She testified about what happened to her family. But in August 2015, the sale went through anyway. You want to give up, and it's not in my nature to give up. Remember, Sandy had been fighting Mnuchin's bank for years, and she still lost her family home. Then she'd paid tens of thousands of dollars in rent to live in that same house. As she battled Mnuchin's bank, Sandy heard from a lot of other families, hundreds of them, families who had the same problem she did. Her phone rang off the hook with desperate people seeking advice. Well, what I did learn along the way in losing every step of the way was I learned how to use every step of the way to the benefit of the next person so that it wouldn't happen to them. And as she talked to these families who were trying to hold on to their homes, she realized this wasn't just her problem. And I was looking for a bigger solution. 
an alternate solution because that's always what I'm trying to look for. What are my next options? Sandy became convinced that the bank was constantly breaking the law, and she wanted to do something about it. So she went online and found David Schur, a Washington, D.C. lawyer, one of the top whistleblower attorneys in the country. He specialized in a particular type of case, representing people who say they have evidence the government is being defrauded. My personal first conversation with Sandy, I remember because I remember her story as being different. She wasn't a a typical insider. Cher got his firm's private investigator involved to check Sandy out and to be sure she was telling the truth. He decided to take the case. She wasn't like in the industry or something. She was um, someone whose parents were a victim of this fraud. And I found that fascinating. Sandy came armed with piles of documents she'd spent years accumulating about her own story and the other families she heard from. The fraud Sandy alleged was really complicated. There are a lot of consumer protections Mnuchin's bank was supposed to provide for families with reverse mortgages. For example, they were supposed to give the heirs a chance to keep the house when an elderly borrower died. But Cher says the bank didn't follow these rules. He says they broke the law. He basically set up a system whereby this company would, as quickly as possible, immediately foreclose. Mnuchin then billed the government for his costs on the foreclosures, for things like attorney's fees and appraisal costs. Because the foreclosure wasn't proper, those fees are not legitimate. So it was a couple of thousand dollars per house, which may not sound like a lot, but it added up to $100, $200 million or something by the time that, you know, you added it all up. Like I told you earlier, the government had agreed to back up all these bad mortgages, even picking up these other costs if there was a foreclosure. But if these foreclosures weren't legitimate, then Steve Mnuchin would be breaking the law. So David Scher called a friend in a U.S. attorney's office, and soon Sandy was headed to Washington for a meeting at the Justice Department. Several members from HUD, from the Department of Justice, FBI agents, and a drilled her for hours. <laughs> that's, uh, that's my recollection of the meeting. I got very intimidated. And after all that grilling, the government decided to take the case. But they told Sandy it was a secret. Can't tell anyone. Cannot tell a soul. That's an incredible secret. Oh, my God. There were so many times when I wanted to tell somebody, anybody, and I couldn't do it. By now, it was 2015, a decade after Sandy's parents signed that reverse mortgage. And Sandy was told to wait. Again. A year passed. What's the great An election got underway. Home ownership, right? That's the American dream. The American dream. We want the American dream. We want to own our home, right? Donald Trump was running for president as an outsider on a populist platform. And part of his pitch was that President Obama had bailed out the banks and left Americans with nothing. This is a disaster. So, U.S. home ownership, it's down more, I think they said like 51 years it's the lowest, right? 51 years. So look at this, Obama. Great job, Obama. Boom. That's Trump campaigning in a sports arena. August 2016, shortly before the election. But while Trump was lauding the joys of homeownership, he surrounded himself with the very homewreckers who were undermining the American dream. Steve Mnuchin was his campaign finance chairman. 
Tom Barrick, who ran the company that bought Sandy's home after the foreclosure. After Trump won, he planned the inauguration. And there were others, like Wilbur Ross, who led an investment group that also bought a bank off the government for zero dollars and got billions in subsidies. He became the Commerce Secretary, and Trump picked Mnuchin to run the Treasury Department, putting Sandy's nemesis in charge of regulating every American bank. Americans should know that, Stephen, our nation's financial system is truly in great hands. With him, we're going to have no problem, believe me. But there were problems, which Mnuchin brought with him. Democrat Bill Nelson of Florida grilled Mnuchin about them during his Senate confirmation hearing. A 90-year-old Lakeland woman was foreclosed on because of a 27-cent payment error. Foreclosing on an 80-year-old Orange Park, Florida woman that your bank claimed didn't live in the home when, in fact, she did. And she happened to have the foreclosure papers served on her in the home that the bank said she didn't live in. I can assure you that as chairman of the bank, I took these issues very seriously. It's not to say that we didn't have certain mistakes. There, there, there were mistakes. We regret those mistakes. We, we had hundreds of thousands of delinquent loans. It's anybody who thinks that we made more money foreclosing on a loan than modifying a loan has no understanding of this. The Senate confirmed Mnuchin anyway. They didn't know about Sandy's whistleblower complaint because it was still a secret. All the while, the Justice Department was quietly working away on Sandy's case. Then on May 17th, 2017, Sandy received a call from her lawyer. I was so excited because you never think it's going to come. Really, I'd been doing it since 2005. I was just so overjoyed and, and I hoped that it would make a difference. Sandy's lawyer told her she'd won. The government would recover $89 million, a figure that included a $1.6 million whistleblower fee that would be paid to Sandy. But even as it settled, the bank didn't admit it had wrongfully foreclosed on anyone. Of course, Steve Mnuchin was gone by this time. He'd sold the bank and was now the Treasury Secretary. Well, it's not justice. It's not even remotely justice. I will never be able to recover from this experience. Sandy's share of the settlement, $1.6 million, it sounds like a lot. But after her lawyer took his percentage and the IRS took its share, Sandy was left with about $500,000 after more than a decade of fighting. That house on Benson Way, which was to be our family's inheritance, we would have had five dollars or $600,000 equity in it for our family. But I have the big win against them, making them pay something, even though it's a drop in the bucket to them. I have that. With the money she got, Sandy bought a new car, a Lexus, and finally got some long-delayed medical treatments. And I started my nonprofit. I used some of my money to start my nonprofit. The nonprofit is called Consumer Advocates Against Reverse Mortgage Abuse, or Karma. It formalizes what Sandy was already doing, fighting for the people at the other end of all those bad loans. But the homewreckers are still winning. And incredibly, they're still cashing in on Sandy's family home.
This is 681 Benson Way, where my parents lived here 35 years. I went back to see the house with Sandy this spring. It was raining. The house was sitting empty because it was up for rent. And now I see they put one of those guard gates, those gates on the door. It was easy to get inside the house. We signed up online and the corporate owner sent us a code to get in. The house was completely empty. No furniture. If you can imagine this tiny kitchen, I mean, there would be 10 of us in here cooking a holiday dinner in this little tiny place. I told Sandy what had happened to this house since she moved out. In 2017, Tom Barrick sold it, along with the rest of his single-family rental business, to Invitation Homes. Invitation is part of a huge private equity firm called Blackstone, which is run by another home wrecker, Steve Schwartzman. President Trump appointed Schwartzman chair of his strategic and policy forum, which met regularly at the White House. Schwartzman also lives at 740 Park Avenue, a few floors up from Steve Mnuchin. Now, Schwartzman's firm owns 80,000 houses across 13 states, from Miami to Seattle. The house on Benson Way is just one of them. And I told Sandy something else. The rent had gone up again, 3100 a month. I mean, $3,100 for this? Really? It's crazy. We were standing in the living room where her father had watched James Garner pitching reverse mortgages on TV so many years earlier. Then we walked up a narrow flight of stairs to the home office where Sandy first discovered those loan documents. I told Sandy that collecting rent wasn't the main way the homewreckers made money off this house now. It's like this. Collecting rent takes time, and they wanted to make a lot of money right away. So they bundled thousands of homes together and took on a ton of debt. And now it was part of a billion-dollar mortgage-backed security. That's mind-boggling to a person like me who thinks... $100,000 is a lot of money. They put that money in their pocket, that they sold it off to other investors, that debt, and that just a few months ago, they did it again. And now it's a billion dollars that they pulled out of this home and thousands of other homes. You know how a family might pull $20,000 worth of equity out of their home to remodel their kitchen or fix their roof? I told Sandy the homewreckers did that on thousands of homes all at once. In fact, there was a $960 million lien on her parents' home. It seems inconceivable to me that people like that can conceive of a scheme. And now we're talking about billions of dollars, like it's hundreds of dollars. It's a building block. The house that we are standing in is a building block of a fortune to be leveraged and traded and sold. Right. The big difference is that, you know, a home is a place for a family to to live and grow and be happy and gain some equity. And to them, it's not. It's that number and the property address. That's all it is. Dollar signs and property address. I talked to an official at Invitation Homes. She said corporate landlords weren't doing anything wrong by leveraging the homes they own for billions of dollars in debt. She said her company wasn't responsible for killing the American dream. 
and didn't have anything to do with the decline in home ownership. They're just providing options for people who want to rent. As Sandy and I walked through the house on Benson Way with its empty rooms, Sandy realized it was the last time she would ever be here. I'm happy I came. I'm happy I came because there's nothing here for me anymore. There's not even a memory here for me anymore. Those are in my heart and in everything I have of my parents. And this just isn't ours anymore. We walked to the door and stepped outside into the rain and drove off. That was Reveal's Aaron Glantz. Aaron's new book, Homewreckers, is out this week from HarperCollins. To check out all of Aaron's related coverage, visit our website, revealnews.org slash homewreckers. Our lead producer for this week's show is Catherine Miskowski. She had help this week from Ike Shreese Kondaraja. Deb George edited the show. Special thanks to Jeff Chandler and the whole team at Custom House Books and to Caitlin Benz and Quinn Lewis. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, there is always more to the story. Hold up. 